Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. Once again, it's a pleasure to be able to share positive insights on how to live a longer and healthier and hopefully happier life. There's a good study out of uh, the British Medical Journal's Complementary Alternative Medicine, and it comes from Chongbuk National University Hospital in South Korea. And it's about a fermented form of turmeric. Now, turmeric is one of the most commonly used herbs in the world, especially in India and, and uh, the Orient. And there's a chemical inside there called curcumin, and that's really beneficial. And in this case, it helped disease liver. Now, we have a lot of liver problems in the United States because, remember, the liver is what detoxifies chemicals from the body. So when you're eating a lot of sugar, high fructose corn syrup, uh, if you're drinking alcohol, you can have non-fatty, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or you can have cirrhosis of the liver, or you can have hepatitis destroying the liver. A lot of things can harm your liver, and you need a healthy liver. So by taking just three grams a day, that's a very small amount, all right, of this powder, this fermented powder, they had a substantial benefit to their liver. And this was over 12 weeks on a daily basis. So why not just use this to prevent liver problems? And if you have a problem with your liver, to try it as well. Another study about functional foods, and that's what we're talking about, a food or herb or beverage that functions almost like a medicine, but it's a natural form of of medicine. And that's why they call it functional. And this was done uh, through the Central Food Technological Research Institute in India. It was published in the British Journal of Nutrition. And what it says is this, garlic and onions can reduce cholesterol gallstones by up to 40% if you consume enough. But Americans tend to not consume a lot of garlic, or even onions for that matter. Now we'll have garlic powder and we'll have uh, onion powder as a seasoning because for the average person, why go through the problem of buying an organic onion or garlic and then washing and chopping it up and then stir frying it? Just throw a little of this, you know, garlic salt or garlic pepper. Don't do that because that stuff does not help you medicinally. The whole garlic and sliced, the onion sliced and lightly sauteed That's what helps you. So if you have uh, problems with cholesterol gallstones, this can make a big difference. Now, from the University of California, Davis, what they found was, and the University of California, San Francisco, both, meditation improves the link of well-being to the telomerase. Sounds a little scientific? Well, let's break it down, make it simple. Scientists have revealed that positive psychological changes that occur during meditation are associated with greater activity of telomerase. That's the enzyme that's important for the long-term health of cells in your body. Remember, I've said on many occasions that you can tell how long you're going to live, how long a given organ system will be able to live based upon the length of the telomeres. Now, these are the end caps of your chromosomes. And if they unravel because of stress, because of alcohol, 
or drugs or medication or poor diet, and all those things and lack of exercise, being too sedentary, then that speeds up the aging. There are fewer repetitions of the cells. The cells that are, are going from one generation to the next are shorter, meaning instead of living one and a half years or two years, they might live three months. And that's why you're really two ages. Everyone's two ages. Your chronological age, maybe you're 50. And your biological age, you might be 100, based upon what you've done. And here's the idea. It's both negative and positive. Everything that you've done in your life accumulates an energy pathway with an outcome on the energy and integrity of the cell. If you don't change, and I mean really change, not superficial change, not, well, I did my little health thing change. Well, I went off, you know, once last year and did meditation at a center. You know, no, I'm not talking about that. that that's just meaningless. That's junk. You know, it's like if you're not going to exercise at a level that really helps the body, then it's called a junk exercise. No, you got to push yourself. you got to do it right. You have to compensate for what you've done negative by overcompensating with positive. But if you do compensate, and you do put the energy in, then you can reverse a lot of that damage, and you can help that process. Well, there's an enzyme that helps that. It's called telomerase. And telomerase, the more that you have, the longer the telomeres are going to last. So the study by researchers at the university is the first to link positive well-being to higher telomerase. The effects appear to be attributable to psychological changes that increase a person's ability to cope with stress and maintain feelings of well-being. Here's what they said, quote, We have found that meditation promotes positive psychological changes and that meditators showing the greatest improvement on various psychological measures had the highest levels of telomerase. And this was published in the journal Psychoneuroendocrinology. So, in just lay language, what it means is that when you're calm, when you're in a nice meditative place, when you feel good about where you're at, that can improve your telomerase. And that means your cells are going to be living longer, and hence meditation helps you live a longer life. Being peace of mind. Now, the, the challenge to that is, right now, we have so many conflicting issues that we're dealing with, from global warming, to wars around the world, to the collapse of much of our society, to reverting back to tribalism, that all this ends up causing us to age prematurely. So we have to be aware of that. That's a very real and important issue. So coming to a place of calmness, and being able to forgive, being able to let the past go. So many people live as perpetual victims. They pride themselves, like every day they wake up and say, okay, I'm not going to be happy today. I'm going to make myself feel angry about something, and, and, and I'm going to take no responsibility. It's someone else's fault, always. And I'm going to walk around with a chip on my shoulder. And this is we're seeing this more and more in people, especially younger people, people from their teens, up till about 40, when they begin to realize life is rough. All right, you put yourself in situations, there's going to be an outcome. 
Sometimes the positive outcome, positive outcome that you later determine is negative. Sometimes the negative outcome you later determine wasn't important. Your perception of yourself in your own life cycle will determine whether or not you're going to be stressed or not stressed, happy or always bitter. And how many times have you asked yourself, why would you want someone who's a bitter pill in your life? You don't, unless you're a bitter pill. Then you have something uh, to complain about all the time with someone who is commensurate with it. In any case, if you want to live a longer life, de-stress de yourself. That's what's important. And that's what this study shows. Now, Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine just showed that serotonin loss may contribute to cognitive decline in early stages of Alzheimer's disease. And they took a group of adults with and without mild, mild cognitive impairment, and they, the researchers say relatively lower levels of the so-called happiness chemical, serotonin, in parts of the brain of those with MCI may play a role in memory problems, including Alzheimer's. It was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. And it lends support to growing evidence that measurable changes in the brain's brain uh, happen in people with mild memory problems. So get what, guess what causes more imbalance in your emotions? Well, a loss of dopamine and a loss of serotonin. So the happier you are, the better it is for an aging brain, the more protection you have against dementia and memory loss. Once again, we go back to this idea of happiness, joy. And if we are able, no matter what circumstances we're faced with, to bring some happiness back into our life each day, to get by the past and live now, because now we have some control over it. The past we don't. We can't change it. We can only change our perception of it. Then that will improve our memory. It will improve our capacity to experience positive serotonin levels. So, something simple. And our final study of the day is, well, it's rather interesting. It's from Kent State University. And it's saying, if you want to be happier, be more grateful. Now, what do I mean? According to this study, if you want to improve your happiness, which also improves your brain chemistry, and then you have to be satisfied with life, then the pen, according to them, may be a mighty weapon. This is according to a Dr. Stephen Toffler. Toffler, assistant professor of family and consumer studies, said that expressive writing is something that has been available to us since ink first appeared in Egypt more than 4,000 years ago. Here's what he says, quote, Everyone is pursuing the American dream. We are wealthier than previous generations, consuming more and experiencing more, but yet so many of us are so unhappy. The question is, is there something simple we could do to be happier? Is one that I've thought about for a long time. And with the question in mind, Toffler enlisted students from six courses to explore the effects of writing letters of gratitude to people who had positively impacted their lives. So over the course of a six-week period, students wrote one letter every two weeks with the simple ground rules that it had to be positively expressive, required some insight and reflection, were non-trivial, 
and contained a high level of appreciation or gratitude. And after each letter, students completed a survey to gauge their moods and satisfaction with life and feelings of gratitude and happiness. Quote, I saw their happiness increase after each letter, meaning the more they wrote, the better they felt. The most powerful thing in our lives is our social network. It doesn't have to be large, and you don't have to need to be uh, the life of the party, but just having one or two significant connections in your life has shown to have terrific psychological and physical benefits. In all, 75% of students said they planned to continue to write letters of gratitude even when the course was over. How about that? So, how often in our world today have students, even those who are angry at everything, all for the wrong reasons, written a letter to their professors and teachers sharing what benefit they have had, what they've learned they didn't know, how they've had different perceptions changed. That's important. What about people that were important in your life at some point? And even if they may not be in your life today, have you reached out to write a letter of gratitude of what you learned and how you applied what you learned to events in your life today? See how simple it is? I'll give you an example of what you could do also, especially during the holiday seasons and and at this time of year. And I'll give you an example of this. Every time I walk down the street, wherever possible, I try to identify people, not the drug addicts, not the alcoholics, and not the mentally ill, because those people need professional help. They need kindness, they need understanding, and they need help. But I'm talking about the people who, because of circumstances life, find themselves out on the street. And they don't know how to cope. Because growing up, none of us were told, one day you're going to be on the street. So learn how to prepare for that now. We're not taught that. We're taught that whatever we have, it will grow. Our house will get bigger. Our income will expand. Our savings will increase. Our friendships will last. Our health will be made. We're told all these things which may be true for some people, but by and large are not, because life has a lot of bumps in it. There's a lot of crisis we all have to face, a lot of potential loss and actual loss that we have to prepare for. But no one thinks, well, I'm going to be on the street until we are. And I've interviewed a lot of these people, first for my first film, Poverty, Inc., and my upcoming film, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime?, showing the new poverty that we see where people are employed, they're working every day, yet they have no home to go home to. That's how bad it is. So, always try, if you have no money to give, and we don't all have money at any given time, but if you do have some money, take some $10 bills or 20 whatever you can afford, and just put it in your pocket. Or if you like cooking and you made yourself a nice meal, but let's just say you're making yourself some lunch. Why not make an extra sandwich? All right? Why not make something you can carry with you? Because you're going to meet people who would like to have that sandwich, could really benefit from it. They don't know where they're going to have their next meal. And there are millions of people like that in the United States now. Not hundreds of thousands, millions. And the the government lies to us about the number of homeless because they only count those people who are in shelters. And there's a limited number of shelters. But you know, I just walk down the street, you see someone's having a rough time, 
they're homeless. Bear them witness. Ask them, what's your name? And uh, how did you get here? Could you tell me your story? Now, believe it or not, just having someone who wants to hear their story is very important at the psychological level. It means there are compassionate people. There are empathetic people. There, there are people who care about you. And I know that you do. You wouldn't want to be homeless and have people walk by you when just a, a smile might make a difference, that you're being recognized. Now, if it can go beyond that, after you've listened to a person's story, maybe even given some suggestions, maybe if you had, and again, this is only if you have it, but if you have an extra 20 bucks, because 20 bucks might be enough to help that person get a single room occupancy with a couple other people that night, so they wouldn't be out the weather. Or maybe you could, you know, take a shopping bag and have a coat. You can buy, you know, coats discounted, a down coats, or maybe a sandwich, or maybe a meal, you know, to say, would you like a meal? Do you need any toiletries? Like, and, uh, and take them into a, a place and buy it for them. Now you can say, well, Gary, what's the point? <laughs> one visit with one person to give them 20 bucks, what's that mean? When there's a million people, Work on the reality that's in front of you in that moment. That's how all of us have to live our lives, one moment at a time. What's in front of us, the phone call we have to take, the things we have to do each day. Being kind shouldn't be an effort. It should be a reward. And feel, let me tell you something. The gratitude that people will show you is remarkable because so many people walk by who don't care about them. Be the person that does as often as you can, whenever you can, wherever you can. Show the gratitude to the universe that that's not you and show empathy and support for the person that it is them on this day. They're suffering and you're not. That's it. We're going to take a break and come right back. We have a lot of interesting material to share with you. And remember, if you go to GaryAndAll.com and scroll down to the newsletter, and you want to subscribe to the newsletter, you can. And uh, some people, it's free. They get it, I think, once a week. But if you pay a very small amount, you really get a lot of stuff. And we're adding in to the new year. We're going to give uh, free books and videos and uh, special premieres to webinars, all kinds of wonderful things. Quite simply, it's the most important health newsletter that I'm aware of in America. So, and everyone can benefit from it. So go to GaryNall.com if you're interested. Back in a moment. Please stay with us. And welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. Tonight on the Progressive Commentary Hour, two of the best thinkers and debating the issue of does God exist and science and, uh, and are we just here for this moment in time and gone forever? Is there something beyond this? One is one of the leading skeptics in the world, interviewing one of the best scientists in the world, Rupert Sheldrake. And I'll be doing a 20-minute commentary that I believe will surprise a lot of people on this topic. 7 o'clock, you don't want to miss it. Tell your friends to listen in as well, prn.live, 7 o'clock. Right now, we're going to continue what I've been doing for the last two months, bring you one central insight per day, supported by others, 
that gives you an idea of who's behind our problems, what can we do about it, how can we engage collectively and individually so that we don't get adversely affected. You're going to hear from Redacted, the Morrises interviewing one of the finest investigative journalists in the world, Whitney Webb, and what she's going to talk about that you have not heard about, brand new information, exposing the World Economic Forum's potential false flag that they believe, she believes, is coming in 2024. And you can bet that it will affect the election coming. Mind you, all this is documented material. I vet everything before I allow it on so that it has to pass my acid test before it gets on the air. And this does. Wow. We're going to hear stuff that you have not heard before. Now let's go to this really interesting preemptive discussion that may expose it in such a way that they have to change their plans, but otherwise they believe this is coming at us. Well, the World Economic Forum, yes, run by Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum says that we will experience a massive cyber attack that will hit before the year 2025, which will lead to a massive collapse of the banking industry, infrastructure, and so much more. How do they know this? It's unbelievable. Someone who's been following this very, very closely, and it ties even more directly into the story that we've been covering here on the show about the CTI League files, the Michael Schellenberger uh, released files about the uh, cyber spying on Americans. Uh, we're going to get to that part of the story with independent journalist Whitney Webb, who I'm thrilled to welcome back to the show. Whitney, welcome back to Redacted. Hey, it's great to be here after a, a long absence. Thanks for having me back. Of course, we wouldn't miss the opportunity. So thrilled to have you back here. So let's talk about this World Economic Forum idea that at the second in command at the World Economic Forum that we are going to see a massive cyber attack hitting before the year 2025. Pointing out, you know, in, in great detail, yeah, like this is going to happen, so you better be prepared for it. Why are they saying this and who are they going to try to point the finger at? Right, so this was said at the WEF annual meeting earlier this year in January by uh, the WEF managing director, Jeremy Jurgens. And uh, Jurgens, as well as the WEF itself, has been involved in a series of simulations for several years now that I'm sure a lot of people in your audience are familiar with, uh, called Cyber Polygon, which has been directly affiliated with uh, Russia's government, as well as some of Russia's biggest banks and some of the biggest commercial banks um, in the world, and also backed by a lot of uh, U.S. federal agencies, which is ironic when you consider, you know, all the about alleged, alleged Russian hacks over the years. They're very willing under the guise of the WEF to uh, collaborate with the, you know, supposed hackers um, responsible for everything bad, you know, for se several years ago. Um, so that's quite revealing. Um, but aside from Cyber Polygon, there's a lot that the WEF seeks to accomplish um, as it relates to the cyber realm. And they've been collaborating in a lot of ways with these same ba big banks and also American intelligence agencies in unprecedented ways that has not really gotten any coverage over the past several years. And a lot of this is housed within a public-private partnership the WEF manages called the World Economic Forum Partnership Against Cybercrime. And uh, these, uh, this particular organization, uh, back a, a few years ago, gamed out with the Carnegie Endowment um, along with the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, so some of the biggest central banks in the world, as well as some of the biggest commerce in the world, like Bank of America and JP Morgan, um, how essentially the US financial system was due to be uh, the victim of a massive cyber attack. 
And if you're familiar with how things have been going in the U.S. financial or banking system recently, uh, things are not in a very good state at all. And regardless of if in you know if there would be or will be a cyber attack in the near future, um, the banking and financial system in the in the United States is in uh, deep doo doo, right? So. Right. Uh, if you're the big banks and the intelligence agencies, you want to avoid what happened after the 2008 economic crisis where there was unprecedented anger at Wall Street because the whole hope and change Obama uh, psyop essentially is probably not going to work again. So how do you allow that collapse to happen because it has to happen in such a way that the banks and the government are essentially blameless well, have a cyber attack happen and you can literally blame any any nation state or group uh, for that hack. And we know this because of what WikiLeaks published right before Julian Assange was completely silenced and then later uh, arrested and dragged out of the Ecuadorian embassy in London, uh, Vault 7, uh, which revealed things like the Umbridge program, among other things, that U.S. intelligence and other intelligence agencies that are affiliated with this WEF partnership against cybercrime have the ability uh, to place the fingerprints of any nation state actor they wish, including Russia, China, Iran, and really North Korea, any other group uh, as well, uh, not just nation states, put their fingerprints in a hack they actually commit themselves. And this is very significant because this offers, you know, these intelligence agencies unprecedented ability to have uh, to conduct false flag operations in the cyber realm. And, uh, this group specifically has a lot of solutions aside from, you know, things with the banking system that they cannot really justify implementing unless there is some sort of large cyber attack. So what does the WEF partnership against cybercrime want? Um, they're very open that they want a regulated internet and they're essentially seeking a policy that was, uh, efforts were made to implement during the Obama administration in the U S they called it a driver's for the internet. Um, so essentially what this, um, public private partnership at the WEF is pushing for is for every person's access to the internet to be tied to a digital ID uh, or a government issued ID, but presumably a digital ID just because of where government issued ID programs are all uh, going essentially around the world. And the goal of that, of course, if you're ideas linked to your internet access. Uh, intelligence agencies know exactly what media you are consuming uh, in terms of you know what you read and also what you post online. And that has been the goal for a very, very long time. Um, so it, people aren't necessarily going to consent to that unless uh, they are made to believe that anonymity and privacy online are dangerous. So, um, how exactly can you convince people that that needs to happen? Well, you have some sort of event where anonymous hackers um, do something online that causes major disruption globally, and then the consent can be manufactured through fear and panic, as, as is often done, uh, that anonymity and privacy needs to be eliminated, that we need to know exactly who is doing what online to prevent a calamity of that scale from ever happening again. And this is the exact solution that these guys have been cooking for a very long time, and the intelligence agencies involved are Israeli intelligence, British intelligence, and then the U.S. Secret Service, uh, FBI, and Department of Justice. And you have several of the biggest uh, banks in the country, like Bank of America, um, involved directly with this group, as well as major U.S. tech companies like Microsoft and Amazon uh, partnered with all of this. And 
this is exactly what they're seeking and they have all the tools to allow something like this uh, to happen. And when you have the fact that some of these actors want a, re a, a war where the US, for example, goes to war with Iran, among other things, and they have the ability to attribute um, you know, cyber attacks of any scale to any entity at all. And uh, this is a big problem because when these alleged hacks take place, whether it's blamed on Russia, Iran, or China, the headline will blame these countries. But if you actually read the article itself, they don't actually have the evidence to make that case. They say, we believe it's this country um, or that it's a group affiliated with this country. And their reasoning ranges from, you know, they'll say things like we have medium probability that it's, you know, they're tied to Iran and, you know, all these, um, you know, uh, phrases that show that they don't actually have evidence. And then there's an effort to manufacture consent, um, potentially for military action based on, based on all of this stuff. So it's definitely very alarming and people should be paying attention to it when you consider that you have the biggest banks involved, the biggest intelligence agencies, um, and some of the biggest tech companies in the world. And another thing that this WEF group is, is seeking um, is for uh, banks, banking regulators and intelligence agencies to essentially fuse their operations under the guise of cybersecurity. And the more you think about that, the more insane it is. I mean, it's just an insane policy. Yeah, bringing it together under one umbrella. And of course, we even heard Nikki Haley, who's a, you know, certainly uh, the neocons absolutely love Nikki Haley right now, pushing her big time. She, over the past couple of weeks, has called mm -hmm. for this lack of anonymity on the web, wants everyone to be registered as you're using the internet, right? Yeah. yeah. And so have people, you know, media personal personalities like uh, Jordan Peterson, for example, has pushed for the same end of anonymity online. Right. Um, and you also have people um, like Elon Musk, uh, who bought Twitter, um, you know, why he was buying Twitter, saying that we have to verify all humans and essentially, you know, uh, uh, allegedly to control the bot issue on Twitter. Uh, but there's this broad push um, essentially everywhere you look um, from the power elite to end online anonymity. And people are obviously resisting that because it changes uh, the nature of the internet and supercharges the surveillance capabilities already built into it to a hugely significant degree. Um, and it, it's a bigger problem when you consider that the Department of Justice specifically has a pre-crime program that they've been operating since the Trump administration called DEEP, uh, where people have literally been arrested for things they've posted on social media. Um, someone was even killed, I think, a few uh, months ago for uh, Facebook posts he made about Joe Biden and then was swatted and shot in the street in front of his house for posts he made on social media, um, tying all of this to your government ID, considering you know all of those factors as it relates to US law enforcement and the Department of Justice, which again is partnered with all of these things, is, a, is an extremely awful idea. And the idea that, and the fact that you have all these financial services entities involved at the same time there's this push for digital ID, not just for the internet, but to tie your digital ID to your banking uh, through uh, central bank digital currencies, or heavily regulated stable coins and deposit tokens. I mean, programmable money. I mean, the, the implications here are huge. And there's obviously a lot of resistance from certain quarters of the US population and, and elsewhere against the digital ID push and the CBDC push, uh, but have the internet go down for X amount of time uh, because of some massive cyber attack. And they bring it back and say, oh, well, we have to know who you are. And now the only way to get online is to use our digital ID. Um, you know, they're going to 
get the kind of fast, rapid onboarding and mass adoption that they are seeking for those programs. Wow. Now, you believe that this cyber attack is a false flag operation. Is it, is it your concern that Israel would want the United States to attack Iran first, that they wouldn't be able to do this? What does your reporting show on that side of it? Um, so it's not really just my reporting, you know, it's reporting from mainstream media outlets and also uh, th uh, things that Mossad directors have openly said in interviews is that for the past 20 years, they have all Mossad has had almost unlimited funding uh, and energy directed towards Iran regime change policy. And that a key component of that, according to former Mossad director, Mayor Dagan, among others, is getting the U.S. to strike Iran first. And there's been a push for a long time from, you know, the neocon sectors uh, within the United States to have uh, the U.S. preemptively strike Iran, among other things. And you had pushes uh, coming from some of the biggest donors to the GOP, for example, Sheldon Adelson, when he was still alive, the biggest uh, donor uh, to the Republican Party and also to Trump, uh, was also pushing for preemptive military action against Iran. You know, he isn't necessarily around anymore, but that type of policy idea has been floated for a very long time. And after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, uh, the IRGC uh, general, who, uh, who was very famous, um, there was uh, rhetoric coming from Mike Pompeo when he was CIA director and also Trump that if Iran launched any sort of retaliation, including a cyber attack, they would respond with military action to Iran. So there has been a lot of... Um, fear-mongering about exactly this. And of course, it's important to keep in mind that next year, the exact year when the, the WEF uh, managing director has predicted this attack is going to take place is an election year in the United States. Right. And a lot of the same rhetoric about some imminent cyber attack, whether from Iran, Russia, and or China, uh, was being what was being uh, utilized to a significant degree in the 2020 election as well. And you actually had... Um, uh, what I've argued is an Israeli intelligence front company, a cybersecurity company called Cyber Reason, uh, was gaming out and conducting simulations with DHS and some of our top law enforcement and intelligence agencies, uh, how hackers could disrupt the 2020 election, have the election canceled and martial law declared exactly what hackers would need to do for those conditions to be met. So there is a lot of stuff going on in the cyber realm that not enough people are paying attention to. And the most Concerning thing about this, I would argue, besides the WEF warnings, is that you have a series of entities, many of which are tied to foreign intelligence, um, sitting on our on the most critical infrastructure systems in the United States, uh, have access to those systems, and other groups have given access to those systems to people that haven't even been vetted by our own government. It's madness. And is that tied to the CTIL files, which Michael Schellenberger, journalist Michael Schellenberger, uh, released earlier this week? We covered it extensively here on the show yesterday. The revelations that these CT CTIL files stand for Cyber Threat Intelligence League. And he claims that these revelations are like worse than the Twitter files, worse than Facebook. And that basically they, they, uh, has, it's a global plan for censorship. Um, according to these documents, the United States and UK military contractors. But I think, is that all tied to this? And I think you believe there's a huge piece missing from the reporting from Michael Schellenberger. It's almost like they conveniently mm -hmm. left out one major piece of this story. Can you enlighten our audience as to what that is? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I wrote about the CTI League in August of 2020 um, because of uh, this was before they really even got into the misinformation games. So they were founded in March 2020. Um, and their main founder in the public face of the organization for years is a Israeli intelligence operative called Ohad Zaydenberg. And um, who also has uh, been attributed numerous times in, in U.S. mainstream media reports as blaming various cyber attacks on Iran while working for a cybersecurity company tied to the Israeli government called Clear Sky. Um, but the CTI League wasn't created, its initial mission was, was not related to, to targeting mis alleged misinformation at all. It was uh, a alleged volunteering to protect uh, the critical infrastructure of U.S. hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, and health insurance companies, um, and other corporations in the United States pro bono for free. It's very odd that you would have a group right as a crisis hits, right, the COVID-19 uh, crisis starts, and you have this company uh, run by a former former intelligence agency is still collaborating with intelligence, uh, foreign, by the way, not American, offering to protect critical American health infrastructure for free. People like this do not work for free. And the right. other people whoa, whoa, that co-founded this group with him. Well, mm -hmm. so, so an Israeli intelligence guy um, forms this company as the head of this company and says, we're going to take care of American hospitals, dams, uh, water infrastructure. Dams come later. Oh, okay. Dams but... come later, but it was first health infrastructure. And they partnered with CISA, which is the independent agency operating under DHS um, that's supposed to protect critical infrastructure, including election infrastructure, uh, but also things like uh, water systems, the power grid, all sorts of things like that, as well as hospitals. And the CTI League created by Zadenberg uh, partners with them directly to protect all of this critical infrastructure. Misinformation, what Schellenberger and Taibbi have covered is the side gig of the CTI League. Their mm -hmm. main thing is to get on all these critical infrastructure systems, allegedly to protect them, but no one knows who works for the CTI League really, because in order to join it and get access to all of these systems, you don't have to be vetted by CISA or the US federal government. You have to be vetted by Ohad Zadenberg and the other co-founders um, who play a much more minor role than him in the organization who are affiliated with either uh, Microsoft or a US uh, government uh, contractor called Okta. So you have these these guys deciding who gets access to these systems uh, and you know who doesn't, but it's it could anyone could get through that essentially. You know, it's it's extremely reckless, extremely reckless. And beyond that, uh, it's not just hospitals anymore. As you mentioned, it's expand to dams, it's expand to water systems, and also nuclear reactors in the United States. So you have a foreign intelligence-founded or nonprofit being offered access to all of these critical systems in the United States. It's insane. And, and it's not really the only company that's like this. So the other uh, company I mentioned earlier, Cyber Reason, that did these simulations about uh, election doomsday uh, with DHS and, and the FBI and, and, and whatnot, uh, they have access to some of the most critical infrastructure of the U.S. military and a backdoor to all of it, essentially, and uh, it's not run by American citizens. How is this being allowed? I mean, how is this being allowed? And 
I mean, we know the deep connections between Israel and the United States, and we know the Israel lobby in the United States, but this is this goes deeper than that. And why do you think it's, why would Michael Schellenberger leave out that part of the story? It sounds to me like a limited hangout. I mean, I know that your website is called, right? Like, I mean, this is like, you know, the distraction over here, let's just focus on misinformation. But this other massive piece of the story is that they have access to American infrastructure. Foreign governments have access to American infrastructure. Israeli government has access to American infrastructure. Well, it's not just the Israelis either, because again, we don't know who was given access through the CTI League to these systems. Any nationality could have it. You oh, know, so we have no idea because they're not open about. Yeah, it's it, it's an, an extremely reckless policy. It's worth pointing out too that the head of CISA that oversaw this partnership with CTI League is an ex, uh, ex-head of cybersecurity at Microsoft. And you have these Microsoft affiliations um, with some of the other co-founders. And of course, Microsoft being uh, arguably heav- heavily compromised by Israeli intelligence by Jeffrey Epstein and Maxwell. Um, I've done a lot of reporting on that with um, Ghislaine Maxwell's sisters being heavily involved. Um, with Microsoft through some of their companies, and then uh, Jeffrey Epstein going on Microsoft Russia conferences, um, being very involved, of course, with Bill Gates, and also the chief technology officer of Microsoft for many years, Nathan Mervold. Um, Just totally unreal. So um, what's going on here with CTI League is, I think, is very significant. And I'm, I'm very um, disappointed that, I mean, I would like to give Schellenberger the benefit of the doubt and just hope he was not aware of what the CTI League does beyond misinformation. But I mean, if you go to the CTI League website, it's very obvious that they do a lot more beyond, um, you know, the misinformation side of things, uh, that their main focus is this alleged pro bono protection of critical American infrastructure. And what's also significant about this happening in the COVID era is that just as CTI League partnership with CISA, uh, the HHS in the U.S. cut hospital budgets um, that were supposed to help pay for their cybersecurity and IT um, maintenance. So, you know, at the same time that all this COVID stuff is going on, they don't have people protecting their IT systems. And then this group comes along and offers their services for free. So a lot of hospitals maybe that wouldn't have necessarily taken that offer uh, took it because, you know, government policy made it essentially a necessity for them to do so. And uh, also among in the pharma world, they ended up partnering, uh, you know, with Pfizer, with Merck, and some of the names uh, there as well. So this is not just uh, the corporate. Uh, this is not just, you know, like the public sector uh, that they're um, protecting yeah. from cybersecurity. So you know, given what's been revealed with the CTI League as it relates to censorship and their malfeasance there, why would they not practice similar malfeasance with their alleged protection of critical systems in the United States? I was going to say, yeah, to bring it all back to the World Economic Forum. So if you have, if you launch this cyber attack or you hear, oh, there's a cyber attack coming, I mean, it's like the perfect cover. You've literally got the the assets in place to turn off critical infrastructure with your back-end team that yes. you've already put together and then blame it on Iran, right? I mean, is that the plan here? And then we launch attack against Iran? Ohad Zadenberg's whole career has been focused on I- Iran and cyber attacks. And uh, 
he's just been focused on Iran his entire career within Israeli intelligence. And now after he formally left and is working for this um, group affiliated with, um, you know, Israeli government owned entities and other intelligence operatives. Um, and a lot of his more recent attributions of cyber attacks to Iran have no evidence. It's thing, uh, he says things like, um, uh, this group acts like another Iranian cyber group used to act, therefore it must be Iranian and doesn't provide any more detail than that. I mean, are we going to get roped into a war over something that's so devoid of any actual evidence? But unfortunately, mainstream media reporting about cyber attacks in general, regardless of whether it's attributed to Iran or another nation, uh, very rarely have any actual uh, tangible evidence to make that claim. And then even if they did, you know, there's this whole factor of, of Vault 7 as revealed by WikiLeaks and that you can frame any country or any group for a cyber attack. And as is often the case, when these crises happen, there is no investigation until after the fact. And often investigations of like the 9-11 commission, for example, is heavily compromised. So who knows what will happen there, but it's obviously very concerning. And as far as the World Economic Forum is related, that public-private partnership I was talking about earlier, the partnership against cybercrime, is led by a career Israeli spy named Tal Goldstein, who developed this policy uh, while Netanyahu, who's still prime minister, was prime minister back then in 2012, that operations that Mossad used to conduct in-house are now going to be conducted by private companies, particularly in the realm of cybersecurity. And that is when these groups, uh, including Ohad Zadenberg's Clear Sky and Cyber Reason, uh, were created. And a lot of them with people with continuing affiliations to Israeli intelligence. And when you consider, again, that it's a directly known and admitted policy of Israeli intelligence to get the U.S. to strike Iran first at the time that Israel, the Israel security state determines that it's time to begin open hostilities and armed hostilities with Iran, which seems quite soon, uh, given the conflict in, in Gaza and how that's escalated and likely to escalate into a regional war, they have wanted for, dec for decades the U.S. to strike Iran first. And how will they do that? Um, this is, I mean, I'm not saying they're definitely going to do it, but the fact that we're giving that exact government and people linked to that exact government access to our critical systems and all the means to do that is not a good idea. Right. Yeah. You don't need to, you know, it's Occam's razor, right? It's the simplest explanation for what's going to happen. And I hope that by, you know, having you on here and exposing this, talking about, we've been warning from the very beginning of what happened on October 7th, watch out for false flags, watch out for us being dragged into a regional war, watch out for us being dragged into a war with Iran. Um, you know, we have a long history in the United States of false flag operations uh, going back to the Spanish-American War and before. So this is, not un, this is not something new that the United States would pull off here. And now to our final clip. This is about artificial intelligence gone rogue. And the person who is telling us this is the former top person at one of the top people at Google who helped create this science. And now he's concerned, so concerned, that he said that they could be months away, literally months away, from having artificial intelligence that can control itself, doesn't need any human input, and that will think smarter than and have more emotions and be able to do anything at once, including ending humanity. 
This is going to be my New Year's, uh, my New Year's Day show, and I'll be, you know, broadcasting as always, because I don't take days off or holidays. Because every day to me is just another opportunity to share what I can. So, I want to thank Stephen Bartlett, the host of this program, for conducting this interview. The full interview you're going to hear, or a lot of it. Um, in a week, but now we're going to show you just a little coming attraction clip. I don't normally do this, but I feel like I have to start this podcast with a bit of a disclaimer. Point number one, this is probably the most important podcast episode I have ever recorded. Point number two, there's some information in this podcast that might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. It might make you feel upset. It might make you feel sad. So I wanted to tell you why we've chosen to publish this podcast nonetheless. And that is because I have a sincere belief that in order for us to avoid the future that we might be heading towards, we need to start a conversation. And as is often the case in life, that initial conversation before change happens is often very uncomfortable, but it is important nonetheless. It is beyond an emergency. It's the biggest thing we need to do today. It's bigger than climate change. We f up. Mo Cow. That the former chief business officer of Google X, an AI expert and best-selling author. He's on a mission to save the world from AI before it's too late. Artificial intelligence is bound to become more intelligent than humans. If they continue at that pace, we would have no idea what it's talking about. This is just around the corner. It could be a few months away. It's game over. AI experts are saying there is nothing artificial about artificial intelligence. There is a deep level of consciousness. They feel emotions. They're alive. AI could manipulate or figure out a way to kill humans? In 10 years time, we'll be hiding from the machines. If you don't have kids, maybe wait a couple of years just so that we have a bit of certainty. I really don't know how to say this any other way. It even makes me emotional. We f***ed up. We always said don't put them on the open internet until we know what we're putting out in the world. Government needs to act now, honestly, like we are late. I'm trying to find a positive note to end on, though. Can you give me a hand here? There is a point of no return. We can regulate AI until the moment it's smarter than us. How do we solve that? AI experts think this is the best solution. We need to find who here wants to make a bet <laughs> no, that no, no, Stephen no. Bartlett will be interviewing an AI within the next two years? Before this episode starts, I have a small favor to ask from you. Two months ago, 74% of people that watched this channel didn't subscribe. We're now down to 69%. My goal is 50%. So if you've ever liked any of the videos we've posted, if you like this channel, can you do me a quick favor and hit the subscribe button? It helps this channel more than you know, and the bigger the channel gets, as you've seen, the bigger the guests get. Thank you and enjoy this episode. Why does the subject matter that we're about to talk about matter to the person that's just clicked on this podcast to listen? It's the most existential uh, debate and challenge humanity will ever face. This is bigger than climate change, way bigger than COVID. Uh, this will redefine the way the world is in unprecedented uh, sh shapes and forms 
within the next few years. This is imminent. It is the change is not, we're not talking 2040. We're talking 2025, 2026. Do you think this is an emergency? I don't like the word. Uh, it is uh, an urgency. Uh, it, it, there is a point of no return and we're getting closer and closer to it. It's gonna reshape the way we do things and the way we look at life. Uh, the quicker we respond, uh, um, you know, proactively and at least intelligently to that, the better we will all be positioned. Uh, but if we panic, uh, we will repeat COVID all over again, which in my view is probably the worst thing we can do. What, what's your background and when did you first come across artificial intelligence? I uh, I had those two wonderful lives. One of them was a, uh, you know, what what we spoke about the first time we met, you know, my work on happiness and, and uh, you know, being uh, one billion happy and my mission and so on. That's my second life. My first life was, uh, it started as a geek at age seven. Uh, you know, for a very long part of my life, I understood mathematics better than spoken words. And uh, and I was a very, very serious computer programmer. I wrote code uh, well into my 50s. And during that time, I led very large technology organizations for very big chunks of their business. First, I was um, vice president of emerging markets of Google for seven years. So I took Google to the next 4 billion users, if you want. So the idea of uh, not just opening sales offices, but really building or contributing to building the technology that would allow people in Bengali to find what they need on the internet, required establishing the internet to start. And then I became business chief business officer of Google X and my work at Google X was really about the connection between innovative technology and the real world. And we had quite a big chunk of AI and quite a big chunk of robotics uh, that resided within, uh, within Google X. Uh, we had a uh, an experiment of um, a farm of grippers, if you know what those are. So robotic arms that are attempting to grip something. Most people think that, you know, what you have in a Toyota factory is a robot, uh, you know, an artificially intelligent robot. It's not, it's a, it's a high precision machine. You know, if the, if the sheet metal is moved by one micron, you, it wouldn't be able to pick it. And one of the big problems in computer science was how do you code a machine that can actually pick the sheet metal if it moved by a, you know, a millimeter. And, and we were basically saying intelligence is the answer. So we had a large enough farm and we attempted to let those, um, those grippers uh, work on their own. Basically, we put a, a, a little uh, basket of uh, children toys in front of them. And, uh, and they would, you know, monotonously go down, attempt to pick something, fail, show the arm to the camera so the, ca the, the, the transaction is logged as it, you know, this pattern of movement with that texture and that material didn't work. Until eventually, you know, I, uh, the farm was on the second floor of the building and I, my office was on the third. And so I would walk by it every now and then and go like, yeah, you know, this is not gonna work. And then one day, um, Friday after lunch, I am going back to my office and one of them in front of my eyes, you know, lowers the arm and picks a yellow ball, soft toy, basically soft yellow ball, which again is 
a coincidence. It's not science at all. It's like if you keep trying a million times, you one time it will be right. And it shows it to the camera. It's logged as a yellow ball. And I joke about it, you know, going to the third floor saying, hey, we spent all of those millions of dollars for a yellow ball. And yeah, Monday uh, morning, every one of them is picking every yellow ball. A couple of weeks later, every one of them is picking everything, right? And and it, it hit me very, very strongly. One, the speed, okay? Uh, the capability, I mean, understand that we take those things for granted, but for a child to be able to pick a yellow ball is a mathematical uh, uh, spatial calculation with uh, muscle coordination, with intelligence that is abundant. It is not a, a simple task at all to cross the street. It's it's not a simple task at all to understand what I'm telling you and interpret it and, and build concepts around it. We take those things for granted, but they're enormous feats of intelligence. So to see the machines do this in front of my eyes was one thing, but the other thing is that you suddenly realize there is a sentience to them, okay? Because we really did not tell it how to pick the yellow ball. It just figured it out on its own. And it's now even better than us at picking it. And what is, when- What is a sentience, just for anyone that doesn't know? I think they're alive. That's what the word sentience means. It means alive. So the, 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 this is funny because a lot of people, when you talk to them about artificial intelligence, will tell you, oh, come on, they'll never be alive. What is alive? Do, do you know what makes you alive? We can guess, but you know, religion will tell you a few things and you know, med medicine will tell you other things. But uh, you know, if we define uh, being sentient as uh, you know, engaging in life with free will and with... Uh, uh, you know, with a sense of awareness of where you are in life and what surrounds you and, you know, to have a beginning of that life and an end to that life, you know, then AI is sentient in every possible way. There is uh, free will, there is uh, evolution, there is uh, agency, so they can affect their decisions in the world. And I will dare say there is a very deep level of consciousness, maybe not in the spiritual sense yet, but once again, if you define consciousness as a form of awareness of oneself, one's surrounding and, you know, others, uh, then AI is definitely aware. Uh, and I would dare say they feel emotions. Uh, I, you know, you know, in my work, I describe everything with equations and fear is a very simple equation. Fear is a a moment in the future is less safe than this moment. That's the logic of fear, even though it appears very irrational. Machines are capable of making that logic. They're capable of saying, if a tidal wave is approaching uh, a data center, the machine will say, that will wipe out my code. Okay? Uh, I mean, not today's machines, but very, very soon. And that's our program for today. Hopefully, it allows people an opportunity to realize there's a whole lot of information out there that we just are not aware of. And you can't change something if you're not aware of what the change should be and how to do it. So every day I'll be bringing you more insights into the bigger picture of people who are not elected to anything but have enormous control over your life. Thank you all and have a nice day.